morning. Before we dive in, please let me pray for us, and let's pray together that we'll understand God's word that will apply it to our lives. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this day you've given us. Thank you for this Lord's Day. Thank you how you've already worked and how we've already heard your word this morning and worshiped you together. And thank you for those who did come out tonight. Pray, Lord, that each of us would be especially blessed by what your word says. Lord, that we would take it home with us. Lord, that it would change us again from the inside out. Lord, that it would make us more and more like Christ. And that's the goal of this. We want to be made into the likeness of Christ. We want to be more like him. We want to glorify him in every aspect of our lives. I pray you'll give us the strength to do that. I pray that you'll give us the accuracy as we think through this passage. Lord, I pray that we would apply it faithfully and diligently this week. And we do pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. We've already argued in chapter 4 that the greatest need for this life and for the next life is direct access to God. I can't think as we read the Bible any greater need for mankind than for us to have that wall that separated us, that's been caused by sin, for that to be torn down and for us to have direct access to God. Everything else that we have is great, but we would not have any of those blessings. We would not have the worship that we enjoy in Sunday. We would not have the Bible studies that we enjoy. We would not have the prayer times that we enjoy without that direct access to God. We've already looked at that in chapter 4. And we've been alienated from God on the most fundamental level. We've seen how sinful our sin is. We see that we cannot have access to God on our own. We've seen that a wall has been built up. And as we've been looking specifically at the Levitical priesthood, we've seen that there's been a law that's shown us how sinful we are. A wall, a wall that has been put between us and God. And there was an annual day of atonement. We've looked at that here and there. In Leviticus chapter 16, it says, On this day that atonement shall be made for you to cleanse you, you'll be clean from all your sins before the Lord. But there is still a problem with the annual atonement. Say, what's the problem with it? What's the problem? You hear even the title. It is an Annual atonement. It has to happen every single year. There's already an inherent weakness that you can see in the title of it. The law of Moses and the priesthood of Levi could still not provide ultimate access to God. It couldn't do it. That's where we left off last week. This is actually our last week, Lord willing, in Hebrews chapter 7. We've been learning some very important lessons that Melchizedek teaches us. And what's Melchizedek's main job been? Who is Melchizedek? Is he the Christ? No, he's not the Christ, but what does he do? He points us to Christ. He's a type of Christ. He prefigures Christ. He shows us what kind of priest Christ would be. And just to summarize where we've been, Melchizedek has shown us how Christ can be both priest and a king and how he fulfills both roles perfectly. He shows us what kind of priest king Christ would be. He shows us that Jesus' priesthood it faces no earthly restrictions. He shows that the priesthood of Jesus is better than the descendants of Abraham, who were the Levites, and even greater than Abraham himself. One of you contacted me this week and said the loin tithe would be a good idea. Well, that was a joke, but, but we said that there's still, last week, two more lessons that Melchizedek had to teach us about Christ. And last week we saw one of those, and you have those hopefully in your notes. Number one there in the notes, he shows us that the Levitical priesthood needed to be replaced. The Levitical priesthood needed to be replaced. We saw five lines of proof for that last week. If you look down at chapter 7, in verse 11, we saw Aaron's imperfection. So Aaron represents the Levitical priest in that verse, and that priesthood could not ultimately make anyone right with God. 
And you saw David's prophecy also in 11, verse 11. Even while the old covenant was still in operation, even while it was still in existence, there was a king who ruled, and it was David, and he prophesied in Psalm 110 that something better was going to come. So David's prophecy showed us that the Levitical priest had to be replaced, that there was another priesthood that was going to be instituted. The third line of proof we saw last week was Christ's tribe, and that there were no messianic promises given to the tribe of Levi. But what tribe were those promises given? Judah. And that's where Christ comes from. It comes through the line of David, through the line of Judah. And then number four, we saw last week Christ's power. He did not have to meet the same physical qualifications that Levi did. The Levites did. He made a much greater qualification. And what was that greater qualification? The power of an indestructible life. And lastly, last week, we saw Moses' weakness. The Levitical priesthood was all bound up in the law of Moses to such an extent that when the priesthood changes, what else has to change? When the pri- there's a change of priesthood, there's an also, by necessity, a change of law also. Now I want you to notice in verses 18 and 19, two hands. There's two hands. This shows up a lot in the book of Hebrews. The author likes to use that kind of argument. He says, on the one hand, something is happening, and on the other hand, this is happening. It's the men deck construction for Wendale. All right, he picked up on it. Have you seen Fiddler on the Roof, the story? The Reptevia, the dad, when he's marrying off all of his daughters, he's constantly, as he's looking at the suitor, saying, on the one hand, this guy is such and such and such and such, but on the other hand, and he's constantly reasoning back and forth like that. Uh, fortunately, my father-in-law had plenty of hands, so he came to a good conclusion. So hand number one, what's hand number one in verse 18? On the one hand, what was it? There was a removal of something. Something had to be removed. On the one hand, there is a setting aside of a former commandment. The author told us that the law of Moses has been set aside. It's been annulled. It's been done away with. Why was it done away with? Why did it need to be set aside? Because of its weakness and uselessness. Because the law made nothing perfect. That's where we concluded last week on that one hand. But what's the other hand? What's the second hand? There is not a removal of something, but an introduction of something, a bringing in of something. It says, on the other hand, there is a bringing in, an introduction of a better hope. Why is it a better hope? What does the text say? We can actually draw near to God through this better hope. Nothing else could cut it. Christ's priesthood does it. And that's the proposition, again, I want you to see tonight, is that we have direct access to God himself through the priesthood of Christ. A simple truth that many of you have heard, but this is the heart of the argument, that we have access to God through what Christ has done. This is the better hope, and it's the key to chapter 7. It's the key to the book of Hebrews as a whole. It's the key to our new covenant relationship with God. It sums it all up. Direct access to God is only possible through the priesthood of Christ. No other system can accomplish it. And here's something that's also interesting. By the time you get to our passage tonight in verse 19, what name is gone? What name do you no longer see that we've been seeing all along since chapter 5? Melchizedek. He's faded out of view. Verse 17 is the last time Melchizedek is mentioned in the entire Bible. What does that mean? means he's done, his, he's done his job. Reminds me of John the Baptist. He pointed ahead to the Christ and says, I'm not the Christ, but someone's coming after me. I'm not even worthy to untie his shoes. 
This is what, exactly what Melchizedek did. So we've seen all these lessons that Melchizedek has taught us about Christ, but there's still one more to talk about before we finish chapter 7. Still one more lesson. It puts the final nail in the coffin for the priesthood of the Old Covenant. It shows us how Christ's priesthood is the only way for us to have access to God. It shows us that he's the only way for sinners not to face God's fair punishment. The solution is Christ. It's the only way for us to have man's greatest need met. And here's the high point of the argument. So just as we saw last week, very clear proof that the Levitical priesthood needed to be replaced. In these verses, we're going to see more proof that Jesus' priesthood is the solution. Christ's priesthood is the solution in verse 19 through 28. We're going to see three proofs tonight that make it abundantly clear that Christ's priesthood is the permanent solution for how sinful man can have direct access to God, that Christ's priesthood gives us that better hope. And each one of these proofs are going to show three things, and you'll see them come up over and over again. They're going to show why the Levites were inferior. They're going to show why Christ's priesthood is superior. And then number three, they're going to show why it matters, show the application. So I want you to look down at verse 20. See the first line of proof, and that is the sovereign oath. A sovereign oath. Let's read verse 22 through 20, 20 through 22 together. It says, And inasmuch as it was not without an oath, for they indeed became priests without an oath, but he with an oath, through the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. So much the more also Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. Now we do a little bit of review because he's assuming some things that we just came across in chapter 6. It's been several weeks since we've been there, but if you were there listening to this book originally read, it was just something that would be minutes before, but now we're thinking weeks back. So what was he saying back in chapter 6? Do you remember the two unchangeable things that were mentioned in chapter 6? The two unchangeable things in which it was impossible for God to lie? Do you remember what those two things were? You look back at chapter 6, verse 18. The two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie or which show that it's impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. What were the two unchangeable things? They were the promise and the oath. The promise and the oath. And do you remember what person that part of chapter 6 was talking about? If you think back to that part of chapter 6, what person was in question there, in view? You're allowed to say it out loud. I don't mind. What person was he talking about? Abraham. Abraham. Abraham was the one in, in view. The promise originally made to Abraham is the author's bringing that back up. Turn back to Genesis chapter 12. Again, what passage you're familiar with. Genesis 12, verse 2. And you can stay in the Pentateuch there for a minute in the first five books of the Bible. It says, And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. God made that promise to Abraham, but how long did Abraham have to wait before he started to see those promises fulfilled? How long? 25 years before he started seeing them fulfilled. 25 years of waiting, then God gave him Isaac, the son of the promise. 
Then as Isaac grew into boyhood, what did God ask Abraham to do? Offer him up as a sacrifice. Did Isaac die? God provided what? A substitute to take his place. And that's where we see, after all those years, 25 years plus Isaac growing into boyhood, after all that time, God giving an oath to Abraham. There was an original promise, and now God's saying, I'm definitely going to do it. I'm swearing by an oath. I'm swearing by myself. Look ahead to chapter 22. This is where you see the promise, now the oath in chapter 22. Chapter 22, verse 16. God says, by myself I have sworn. Couldn't swear by anyone greater, so he swore by himself. Declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and you have not withheld your son, your only son, indeed, I will greatly bless you. Intensifying the language that he used in chapter 12. I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. It's the oath. God says, I'm going to do it. The author of Hebrews doesn't just leave it in chapter 22, though. He's very interested in seeing how this oath is fulfilled throughout Scripture. And this is very interesting. Where does this oath show up again? What's the next character in the Old Testament where you see his oath show back up? David. And this is what Peter preaches in Acts 2. He said that David knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne. Same oath given to David as it's passed along for the line of Messiah. Then from David to who? The Messiah. David prophesied back in Psalm 110, the Lord has sworn, and again an oath, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. His oath is traced through ultimately to the Messiah, to Christ Jesus himself. Now here's the big question. Did the, the Levites ever have an oath like this? Were the Levites ever given this kind, of, this kind of intense promise of an oath where the Lord's swearing? I want you to notice the contrast in verse 21, the difference between the Levitical priest and Christ. If they didn't have this kind of oath to be installed as priests, how did they become priests? Well, they had to be born into it, right? They were born a Levite. And they had to go through elaborate ceremonies. Turn ahead from Genesis 22, turn ahead to Exodus 29. Exodus 29. And it will tell us. Now this is what you shall do to them to consecrate them to minister as priests to me. Talking about Aaron his son, and his sons. And he goes through an elaborate list of how they become priests, how they were ordained as priests. You get a young bull, two rams that were prepared for sacrifice. You get various unleavened breads. You put them all in a basket and put them with the bulls and the rams. Then you go to the door of the tabernacle. Then they had to do the special bathing ceremony. They had to put on special priestly garments. They had to put on the anointing oil and on and on and go with the ceremony. That's how Aaron and his sons were ordained for the priesthood. But were they ever given an oath? They were never given an oath like this. After all that, did God say, I've sworn you will be a priest forever? He didn't say that there. He never told that to any Levite. text says that the Levites indeed became priests without an oath. But what about Christ? The God who cannot lie. The God whose word is settled in heaven. Whose word will stand forever. Whose word will never pass away. This is the God who swore to the Messiah. You are a priest forever. I'm swearing by myself. It's going to happen. It's going to stand. My word will stand. You have this oath. Notice how exclusive it is. 
Psalm 110 verse 4 doesn't say, you and some other priests are priests forever. It says, you, you and nobody else are a priest forever. No one priest has ever received such a promise except for Christ, except for the Messiah. It's exclusive, it's singular, it's unique. This oath belongs to Christ and to Christ alone. Now look at the emphasis, it keeps going. Verse 20, these verses could have easily said, Jesus' priesthood is backed by a divine oath, period, and gone on. It could have said that very easily, couldn't it? But it doesn't say that. It says the same thing in three different ways. Look what it says. He says, he did not become a priest without an oath. Then it says, the Levites did become priests without an oath. And then it says, Jesus became priest with an oath. And then he goes on to quote Psalm 110 verse 4 to show what that oath was. So why is this emphasis so important? Why is he making such a big deal about this? Why does he keep using language that just, we, uh, we get it, right? Saying it all kinds of different ways. Why is he being so deliberate? What's the whole point? You see the point in verse 22. That's exactly why it's so important. Because of the sovereign oath given to Jesus, verse 22 says that he has become the guarantee of a better covenant. And that's why it matters. He's become the guarantee of something better. This word guarantee, it originally meant literally to put something in hand. Say, so what does that have to do with anything? Ever sold anything, anything of value? Ever bought something of value before? Like a car or a house or something like that? What do people want to know if, they're, if you're buying something from them that's of great value? We say they want, they want to know if you're good for it, right? The guarantor or the surety, as older translation put it, is the person who steps in and takes the responsibility for that debt. That's what this guarantor is. That's what this word guarantee means. Now, it's interesting because where else do you see this concept come up in the Old Testament? Book of Proverbs. And how is it used in the book of Proverbs? What's the basic instruction about guarantors in the book of Proverbs? Don't do it. Don't do it. It's exactly what I wrote down, Madeline. <laughs> Don't do it. Proverbs 6.1, let's read you a few, a few verses. My son, if you become surety for your neighbor, have given a pledge for a stranger. And he says, in other words, don't even think about sleeping until you've gotten out of that situation. And it says in also in chapter 11, he who is a guarantor for a stranger will surely suffer for it. But he who hates being a guarantor is secure. Very clear. Proverbs 22. It says, don't be among those who give pledges among those who become guarantors for debts. So Solomon is telling you that if your old buddy from high school calls you and says, hey man, I've been drinking too much, I've been showing up late for work, uh, but I found, and I lost my job, but I found this really good deal on a car, and I'm gonna get a car loan, if you just become my co-signer, you know, I'll be able to get the car and everything will go well. What would Solomon tell you? He would say, Give uh, Pastor Mike, give, give Pastor Mike's number. He'll no, no, he didn't say. He wouldn't say that. He would say, "Run, get out of there. Don't do it. It's foolish." Why? Why would he say run? We have people dealing with other people. There's always inherently what risk. That's an understatement. Now think about this in terms of our relationship with Christ. Did Christ know that we were weak? Did he know how sinful we are? Did he know we couldn't meet the terms? Did he know that we can never repay what was required? Did he know these things? 
He knew we could never repay what was required. He knew we could never reach the righteousness required to have access to God. He knew this. He knew it perfectly. So what did he do? God acted on his own behalf. He acted by his own will. The God who is absolutely trustworthy, who has sworn that Christ is an eternal priest, and because of that oath, he has become the guarantor of a better covenant. Everyone who puts all their faith and trust in Christ is secure in this new covenant. You don't have to earn your way in. You don't have to pay dues to stay in. Christ is your guarantor. He has stepped in in our place. That's why it matters. That's why it matters that he did become a priest with an oath, and the Levites became a priest without an oath. That's why it matters. It really does affect everything. So it's not clear enough to you already that Christ's priesthood is the solution. There's going to be more proof in verses 23 through 25. More proof. And that is Christ holds an eternal ministry. An eternal ministry. Let's read those verses together. It says, The former priests, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Notice that there's two more hands in this verse. What's the first hand say in verse 23? There are two words in verse 23 that reveal a fundamental problem with the Levites. What are those two words? At least from, I'm reading the New American Standard Bible. And probably in the ESV is still two words. Greater numbers. That's a problem. Why would that be a problem? Usually there's strength in numbers, right? Usually it's a good thing, right? But in this case, it reveals a major problem that no Levite could ever seem to fix. One problem that made it really hard to minister, and that was they kept dying. They kept dying. Succession. Having a successor, someone coming behind you is just a part of being human. Part of the way the world is. I knew of an office worker. She was a very skilled office worker. She had been in the company for many years. She knew all the ins and outs of the company. She knew item numbers. If you went to her for any help, she'd say, oh yeah, I know exactly where that is. And she was very good. Problem was, she had this thing where she didn't want to tell anybody what she knew. She, she would say, I don't like to hoard the information. And you know what she always said? Almost every time you asked her for help, she would say, job security, job security. She had this idea that as long as she had all this information stored, that she would never be let go. The problem is, she was let go not too long after all that because of that mentality in particular. Succession is part of who we are. It's part of our human nature. What, that's the first hand. What about the other hand, verse 24? How many people are, are mentioned in verse 24? Greater numbers in verse 23. On the other hand, how many in verse 24? One. And who is that? Christ. Christ Jesus. How can he just be the one? He lives forever. He continues forever. Or as we saw last week, he has the power of an indestructible life. And because of that, he holds his priesthood permanently. Jesus is the only priest whose term in office really isn't even a term at all. He's not bound by any terms. He's not bound by four years plus maybe another four years of re-election. He's not bound by any of those conditions. It would last forever. Jesus' priesthood lasts. It goes on and on and on into eternity. 
Now, what difference does this make? We saw what the difference of the oath making. What does this make? What difference does this make? I want you to zoom in on the word therefore. It shows us why it's a big deal. It says, therefore, he is able to save forever. The big deal is that it's eternal salvation. Eternal priesthood, eternal salvation. He's able to save forever those who draw near to God through him. Now, how does God keep believers eternally secure? Well, it's, you know, in the Bible. What else does the Bible say? Peter says he keeps us by the power of God. No one can separate us from the love of God. These are all true, very true statements, and we love those statements. But I want you to see what this particular passage says. What is the particular emphasis in this verse? How is he able to save us forever? Since what? He always lives. To do what? Make intercession. That's how he does it. Uh, Mike mentioned uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones this morning. Who's heard of Martin Lloyd-Jones? Good number of us. He was a preacher. He ministered in uh, Westminster Chapel, 1943 to 1968. And after he retired, he spent a lot of time writing and speaking at conferences until he died in 1981. Um, he's one of my favorite preachers to, to listen to and to read his thoughts on how to preach and those kind of things. But another one of my favorite Bible teachers is a man named D.A. Carson. Who's heard of D.A. Carson? He's another very popular Bible, Bible teacher. He teaches in Illinois. He's 47 years younger than Lloyd-Jones. He's ministered on a different continent. Um, he's a seminary professor, not a full-time pastor. He wasn't part of Lloyd-Jones' circle of influence. But you know what Lloyd-Jones' daughter told D.A. Carson sometime after Lloyd-Jones had passed away? You know what he told Carson, what she told Carson? She said, my dad prayed for you all the time. And Carson thought, well, I didn't really know the guy too well. But just think of how remarkable that is. And think about how remarkable it is whenever you hear reports about someone praying for you. Or when someone at church comes up and says, hey, I've been praying for you. Isn't that an encouraging thing? It can lift our spirits. Have you ever, however, have you ever considered that Jesus is praying for you? Have you ever considered that? Have you ever thought about that? That Jesus Christ is praying for you right now. Jesus Christ approaches the Father. He makes requests on your behalf. He appeals for you. One of Christ's most vital ministries is his ministry of making petitions to the Father on your behalf. For his people. I was a camp counselor during my college years. And one of the leaders, this was during staff training... One of the leaders during prayer time mentioned something in his prayer about Jesus praying for us. And uh, some of the counselors got a little ruffled. They thought, Where, the Bible doesn't talk about that. Where does it say that? And Jesus doesn't pray for us. We pray to him, but he doesn't pray for us. And I can't remember how it got all around, but someone eventually said, what about the book of Hebrews? And then the, the tension went away. And, oh, okay. But think about how remarkable it is that Jesus Christ is praying for his people. Hopefully it's not a surprise to you. But think about, we'll turn some, some passages, think about what his prayers for us are actually like. Say, well, I woke up this morning and thought, you know, how, I thought, you know, I was working on the message throughout the week, but how does Jesus pray for us? It's encouraging to think, yes, he does, but what does his prayer for us look like? The Bible does give us an example. Turn back to John 17. Look at John 17, start at verse uh, 9. Number one, he prays for his people. 
Christ prays for his people in particular. He says, I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. He prays for his people. He also prays for our protection. Here verse 12. Says, While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me, and I guarded them. And not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. He prays for our protection. He prays for protection for you from things that you don't even know that you could have gotten into, things you're not even aware of. We say, well, why am I going through this, Lord? Why am I going through this particular problem? That's the question we usually ask. But why not say, Lord, what have you already kept me from? Nothing misses his prayer list. If you're going through it, it's because it's strategic. It's because God is disciplining you to make you know that he loves you and to train you to be more and more like Christ. He prays for your protection. He also prays for your sanctification. Look at verse 15. John 17, verse 15. Jesus says, I do not ask you to take them out of the world. I would like that. That's my option. Just take me out. But he says, I don't ask you to take them out of the world, but to do what? To keep them from the evil one. They're not of the world, even as I am not of the world. And here's the prayer. Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. He also prays for our glorification. Look at verse 24. It says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. He prays for us to be glorified. He prays for us to one day be with him for forever. Now think about that, what we just talked about, and think about all the people around the world every single, every single week who are praying that the mother of Jesus will pray for them. Think about that. That's what's embedded in the Hail Mary, in the Hail Mary prayer. We don't need dead believers to pray for us. That's not their job. Their job is to worship Christ for forever, and Christ, his role and his ministry in heaven is to be praying for us. I'm going to read you a quote from Louis Berkhoff. My dad quoted him this morning, too. Most of them think of him as just a big-time theologian who doesn't really know about practical things, but listen to this quote. It says, It's a consoling thought that Christ is praying for us, even when we are negligent in our prayer life that he's presenting to the Father those spiritual needs which were not present to our minds even and which we're often neglect to include in our prayers. And he prays for our protection against the dangers of which we're not even conscious and against the enemies which threaten us, though we don't notice it. He is praying that our faith may not cease and that we may come out victoriously in the end. Christ is praying for us. And if he's praying for you, who can condemn you? This is what Paul says in Romans 8. Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. He lives and he's praying for his own. We've seen the sovereign oath in Psalm 110. That proves that Christ is the solution. Saw that Christ's eternal ministry also proves that he is the solution. Now notice the third line of proof. That is, Christ himself is the perfect offerer and offering. He is the perfect offerer and the perfect offering himself. Verses 26 through 28. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily, like those high priests, 
to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. Why? Because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints a son made perfect forever. That's the word fitting at the beginning. Fitting. He's exactly the priest we needed. He's the perfect fit. There's no one better for job for the job than Christ himself. Why is that? He gives us six descriptions. Look at these descriptions he gives. First one is holy. Same word used in the book of Revelation for the worship of our Lord. And I'll just read a couple of verses. Revelation 15, verse 4 says, Who will not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For all the nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Chapter 16, the same thing. And I heard the angel of the waters saying, Righteous are you who are and who were, O holy one, because you judge these things. He's holy. Notice number two, he's innocent. That word is literally not bad, and if you could translate it literally. But even in English, is it possible for the words not bad to be strong? They say not bad, right? Not bad, depending on how you say it. That could be something that's very good, right? But he is innocent. That's another statement again. The Bible uses this word for gentle lambs being led to slaughter. Lambs who didn't do anything wrong, didn't deserve a punishment, but there they are being led on to slaughter. Gentle, innocent. There's no evil inside of Christ. There's nothing inside Jesus that made him guilty. That's number three. He's undefiled. When something is defiled, it means it's, there's been a violation. It's been in a context where it doesn't belong. There's a stain. There's an impurity. There's something that's it's no longer useful for what it was originally designed to do. It's, it's defiled. The same word that the author of Peter uses later on where he says, I want the marriage bed to be undefiled. I don't want it to be tainted in any way. I want it to be this one man and this one woman who are bound together. Nobody else. I want it to be undefiled. Christ never participated in anything that defiled him. He never stepped into any context where he was defiled. He never thought any thoughts within his heart that defiled him. Nothing. Number four, he was separated from sinners. You say, well, wasn't he a friend of sinners? He was a friend of sinners. And there's a popular thought that has been going on for a while that in order to reach people, you just do exactly what they do, right? That's not the thought here. He was a friend of sinners, but he was separated from sinners. He never fell into the sin of the people who were around him, not even once. And so far, all these things we've just talked about, those four, are all outward qualifications for Le Levites, aren't they? Those things that, outwardly speaking, on the outside, the Levites had to meet those requirements. But Jesus meets them perfectly on the inside and on the outside. And look at number five, something that the Levites could never touch. He was exalted above the heavens. Psalm 113, the Lord is high above all nations. His glory is above the heavens. Philippians 2 talks about him being highly exalted and given the name that's above every name. And one day, everyone's going to bow at the feet of Christ. He's finished his work and he's taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of God. He's exalted above the heavens. Look at his last description, number six. He, he doesn't share the same sinful nature that the earthly high priest did. He doesn't have the sin, that, earth, that sinful nature. The sin nature of the high priest created a need. It created a problem, created a need for something. What was it? They had to do sacrifices and 
What were those involved? Two different things. Sacrifice for themselves and also sacrifice for the people. Why is it that relationships, you say, well, that's not going well. Where does this have to do with anything? Why, why is it that relationships take so much hard work? Why is that? Our sinful nature creates a need, creates a problem. Whenever you deal, we have one person dealing with the sin of another person, there's always going to be your own sin to deal with. As Mike talked about this morning, the Sermon on the Mount, you have a lot, you take the speck out of your brother's eye, you also have to see the log that is in your own eye. Husbands offend their wives. Wives offend their husbands. Best friends sin against each other. Pastors let their people down. People let their pastors down. It's going on and on and on. How often does this happen? Every day. It's a daily need. These Levitical high priests had a need. That was they had to continually offer these sacrifices for themselves and for the sins of the people. Why? Because they sinned every day. It continued. So they continued to offer the sacrifices. But what makes Jesus different? He doesn't have the same need. He's absolutely perfect inside and out. That makes him the perfect offerer and the perfect offering. He's the perfect priest and the perfect sacrifice, both things combined in one. This is exactly the high priest we needed. And then verse 28 sums it all up. It shows again the difference between the law of Moses and then the oath in Psalm 110. Who's the law appoint? Points men who are weak. Points men who have weaknesses. But there was a law, or there was an oath that came after the law, and what did that oath show? That the law was inherently weak. The, who does the oath appoint? It appoints a man who never needs to be replaced. It appoints a man, Jesus Christ, the God-man made perfect forever. Who's this message for? We said if Jesus prays for you. We said that. We have eternal salvation. We said you have a once-for-all sacrifice for sin. Who's this message for? Is it for everyone? Is it for everyone in this room? And as you're sitting here, have you drawn near to God through Christ? Look at verse 25. It says, therefore, he's able to save forever who? Who? Those who draw near to God through Christ, through him. That's who this message is for. If you draw near to God through faith in Christ, then you will have that access to God. You will have the high priestly ministry of Christ where he's constantly praying for you day and night. And you have eternal salvation. You have this eternal ministry of Christ on your behalf. No fleshly requirements, but an indestructible life. Not weakness and uselessness, but drawing near to God. Not a temporary covenant, but an unchanging oath. Not a temporary work of mediation by earthly priests, but an eternal salvation. Not sinful mediators, but a sinless priest and a sinless offering. This is the Christ that we serve. Let's go to him in a time of prayer. Lord, we admit first that we are weak. We don't just look at the Levites and think about how terrible they were. We admit that we are right along there with them and that we need the same sacrifice for our sins, Lord, that we are people who have sinned against you, that there's been a wall of separation that's been built up between you and us. And Lord, only the blood of Christ, only through the blood of Christ can we have forgiveness, can we be reconciled to you. 
So Lord, we do ask is if, is, if there's anyone in the room who has not been reconciled to God, Lord, I pray that that person would turn to you tonight. Lord, I pray that those who have turned to you, those who have drawn near to you through Christ, would have encouragement, Lord, to know what kind of priest we have. And we do pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.